I ain't got any idea what I'm doing with all these dang microphones here, but let's just hope that you can all hear it and that you enjoy it. All right, gang, what is happening? I am Mal Foster, and you, you lucky devil, you are listening to the latest episode of your third favorite above average, I guess, but infinitely curious podcast, Dimed Out. A show dedicated to exploring both the mysteries and the meaning of life, an audio kaleidoscope of, huh? What? Oh, and yeah, yeah, thrown in for good measure. Especially this week. Look, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This week's episode is going to be kind of weird because the subject that we're covering this week is, well, yeah, weird is definitely a word you could use to describe it, but there are many others. Beguiling, fascinating, bewildering, fantastic, perplexing, confusing, revolutionary, identifiable, to me at least. I mean, this thing is right up my strasser. I'm not going to bury the lead. I, since kind of digging into this, since digging into, as you can tell from the title of this episode, The Church of the Subgenius, yeah, I just, like, click with this thing. <laughs> Which probably tells you, um, either nothing new that you didn't know already, or a lot about me if you have just recently stumbled upon this and you're still getting to know me. If you lessened, if, if you lessened, oh my days, if you listened to last week's episode, which of course was the concluding part of our conversation with Cappy Crab, you will have heard me be very vague about this week's topic, and that's for good reason, because I didn't want to give you a jump start, I didn't want you to kind of go onto the internet and, and use the Google machines and the, the Bings and the Yahoos and the, the Quants and the, uh, the, the DuckDuckGoes and all the other search engines available you to use. I didn't want you to do a deep dive of your own. I wanted this to kind of be fresh. And ideally, hopefully, that's exactly what it's going to be for, I want to say most people listening, because I can't go out on a limb and say everybody listening. That would be ideal. That would be perfecto. But let's be honest, the odds aren't exactly in my favour when that is concerned, because, yeah, honestly, there may be some people listening to this right now because they are fans, followers, or perhaps even, maybe, possibly, members of the Church of the Subgenius. If that is the case, then I just want to let you know, early doors, that what this episode is going to be about is about the Church of the Subgenius. We're going to kind of go from the origins, through their history, in a sort of cliff note fashion, because there is a lot to this. There are layers, there are dimensions. To be honest, it runs pretty deep. There's a lot of depth and a lot of detail to this. I mean, this thing has its own vernacular, pretty much. And, uh, yeah, we're not going to kind of be getting into that as much as we are looking at it from a 101 perspective. Something that we do here on Dimed Out is whenever we tackle a new subject, we kind of look at it as an overview. We look at its nuts and bolts, its bare, basic core components, and essentially, yeah, we go in through the front door on the ground floor and take a look at what it actually is. Which leads me nicely to the all-important question. What is the Church of the Subgenius? 
So, for those of you who have been with the show for a little while, for some of you OG certified Dimers who were at least with us last season when we covered the LHOHQ website, that thing on the internet that at first kind of looks like some sort of mind control device slash conspiracy database, but I kind of came to the conclusion that it is just sort of some piece of digital performance art. By the way, if you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about and it sounds like some Melton hodgepodge of just absolute lunacy, that's because it is exactly that. It's a website that is just... Uh, yeah, I don't even know how to explain it. It's full of flashing GIFs and images, bright colours, pulsing lights, leaked dossiers, well, what appears to be leaked dossiers, weird links to conspiracies, uh, animals with guns, and just really shitty pixelated GIFs of people bouncing on exercise balls. Yeah, it's just madness. Anyway, it's in the archives if you're interested. Uh, yeah, it's season two, episode something. Yeah, it's towards the back end. LHOHQ. It's yeah, it's just its own sort of <laughs> treasure trove of madness. Anyway, whilst diving headfirst into said treasure trove, I discovered some videos from the Church of the Subgenius that are in the website that sort of embedded into the structure, the framework of the LHOHQ website. They are sort of within the uh, the HTML DNA of LHOHQ. That's a lot of acronyms and initials there for you. Uh, that's where I was first introduced to the Church of the Subgenius, and I was kind of hooked a little bit. I was like, what is this? This is utterly absurd, and I love it. I want more. So I went looking for more, and I just consumed a whole bunch and that is where I start my journey with the Church of the Subgenius. But the journey of the church itself, the birth of Bob Dobbs himself, to do that, to kind of get into that, we've got to go all the way back to 1979. Now, if you abide by the law of the Church of the Subgenius, you should know that the, the church itself was founded, I believe, back in 1953 by the one, the only, J.R. Bob Dobbs. Now, if you don't subscribe to the law of the church, you should know that it was co-founded back in 1979 by Ivan Stang, whose birth name was Douglas St. Clair Smith, and Philo Drummond, whose birth name was Steve Wilcox. Two dudes who were kind of oddities, kind of weird kids, outsiders, who found each other and formed a genuine friendship and bond over a mutual interest in comic books, Captain Beefheart, and Frank Zappa, which, uh, yeah is is not surprising whatsoever. <laughs> so you've got these two counterculture fellas who find each other, form a very fast friendship over Zappa, over comic books, over sort of, yeah, counterculture stuff, and over a, a mutual love for what they referred to as kook pamphlets or extremist literature. So, like, free pamphlets, magazines, those sort of thin newspapers you sometimes see from particular sects and groups. Watchtower is, is a good example, but there are plenty others, and uh, they found plenty of them, and that really kind of deepened their bond and their friendship. Furthermore, it also kind of just became the catalyst, it became the creative spark that generated and, and formed the genesis of the Church of the Subgenius, that and their sort of mutual, sort of wicked sense of humour. You know, they described themselves as being trolls before the term was invented. 
pulling sorts of pranks with CB radios, pretending to be aliens to confuse long-distance drivers and such, and having these back-and-forth conversations of just absolute just befuddlement. And it was in one of these sort of befuddling sessions that the term Pink Boy came about. And this is kind of a core term within the, the vernacular of the subgenius. A Pink Boy is a term for everybody and anybody that they didn't like. So bosses, rude workers, rude clerks, you know, just troglodytes and jank holes as a whole. I mean, even now, just thinking off the top of my head, I can just cultivate a pretty long list of pink boys all of my own. Gym bras, people who drive whilst holding their phone to their face, you know, because that phone call is just so important. Those morons, snobs who think they're intellectually on another plane of existence, you know... Especially wine snobs. I don't know why. I don't know why, but those those guys in particular. People that just take things way too seriously all the time. That think they are of some sort of highfalutin importance. And just cannot take the piss out of themselves. Those are pink boys. Yeah. We've all met a pink boy. We've all worked with a pink boy. We've all encountered one in the street. We all, we all know them. We all know them. We all have our own version of a pink boy. And, and a lot of the time, I'm sure they cross over because some of them just are unavoidable you know and some of them are universal some universal assholes that everybody can't stand which subsequently is actually the name of the second album i'm going to be releasing under the dined out umbrella it's going to be the follow-up to infinitely curious yeah universal assholes that everybody can't stand you can pre-order it now it's going to be out spring 2037 Anyway, self-promotion aside, through their friendship and their mirrored mindset, Ivan and Philo came up with the idea of creating the Church of the Subgenius, which in Ivan Stang's words was a weird fringe cult for weirdos. And really, I mean, if you are going to condense it down to a singular sentence, that pretty much does the job. So with this idea in mind, they went about making their own cut-and-paste pamphlet which comprised all of the weird fringe beliefs and ideas that they could merge. But that wasn't enough. They needed a totem of sorts, an icon, a leader. And hence, upon finding a piece of clip art which struck them as perfect, J.R. Bob Dobbs was born. And if you've never seen Bob, if you've never seen him before, then just take a look at the album artwork. You see his beautiful little face, maybe with some modifications. I don't know. I haven't decided what I'm doing quite yet. But you will see the main base of Bob right there. Or if you want to get even more Bob in your life, you can always use the internet. You know, it's right there. It's right there in front of you. If you really can't be asked to look down at your device or just look on the internet, basically it's it's like a 1950s cutout of, of like a very typical sort of cartoon image that would have been used to advertise what presumably is tobacco because he's got like a pipe in his mouth so i'm guessing that's where the clip art comes from i should probably look into this and do my research but do you know what i can't be asked all right so i could be asked you know i just love you too much i can't leave you hanging like that so i did have a look and i can't actually find any specifics it just says 1950s clip art 
that's as as best as I could find. But I did find some dogma for you on on the Messiah, on the the Almighty J.R. Bob Dobbs himself. I did find some dogma for you. So according to the subgenius dogma, Bob was a drilling equipment salesman who in the 1950s saw a vision of God on a television set that he had built himself. The vision inspired him to write the pre-scriptures and uh yeah that kind of set about the whole origin of the Church of the Subgenius itself. Bob has been credited by many church members over the years as being the greatest salesman who ever lived. And he is, of course, if you want to dig deeper into this, this is just a little seed for you to, to latch onto if you do want to investigate more. He is, of course, the personifier of sales magic. The pipe that he has in his mouth, which you can see, which if you can be asked to look at the artwork... <laughs> is said to be filled with the mysterious substance known as, oh Jesus, how do you even have a crack at pronouncing this? Habafrobzilopus. Habafrobzilops. Habafrozipolops. Or frop, as it's known. That would have been easier to say. Much easier to say. Frop. A drug which may contain either mystical, hallucinogenic, or ethnogenic powers. Anyway. According to the church, the image of Bob and his pipe are often seen on random objects, possibly to herald things to come as an omen, or possibly for no reason at all. So if you do see that hallowed piece of artwork, if you do see the image, the vestige of our Lord and Saviour just slapped somewhere, maybe on a child's backpack, maybe on a subway underpass, maybe outside of a subway sandwich shop, then yeah, you can take it two ways. Either it's an omen for something miraculous and amazing, or possibly catastrophic, or nothing at all. Just, it's meaningless. It's entirely up to you. Anyway, getting us back on track, Ivan and Philo put together Subgenius Pamphlet Number 1, which, you know, alongside criticising Christian concepts of God and New Age perceptions of spirituality, also announces the end of the world and the possible deaths of its readers. So that kind of gives you a good sort of look a sort of insight into what exactly they were sort of aiming for when sort of lampooning or satirizing or making parodies of those sort of extremist literature that they they loved so much so they make the pamphlets and then with a list of every publisher that he could find from a copy of writer's digest ivan mails out the pamphlet to all of these publishers to as many as he possibly can and in the process he gets 150 rejections. I believe, if I'm right, a number of them said a lot of similar things along the lines of, this is too niche, there is no audience for this, it's too snooty, it's basically, you know, people just won't get it. It's just not for general public consumption. As I say, there is no audience for this. But it turns out, there was. An audience that was building off the back of a number of flyers that were being distributed. These flyers gave a sample of what the pamphlets offered and contained, and they had a call to action. Send a $1 bill, and you get your pamphlet. And it just kind of clicked. It kind of found the right people at the right time. And some of those right people just happened to work in the right channels. For instance, publishing and radio, which of course then helped it grow even bigger. So at this stage, Ivan and Philo, they've got their deity, they've got their literature, and they are beginning to amass somewhat of an audience. But to really make a religion a religion, 
You need theoretical tent poles, you need cornerstones, you need principles, you need tenets. And that begs the question, what exactly are the tenets of the church of the subgenius? What is its ideology? Now, as I said at the top of the show, this goes pretty deep. There are quite a lot of layers and a lot of details in this. So I'm kind of just going to stick with the main two, the main two sort of core parts of what really makes the church of the subgenius the church of the subgenius. And the first thing is slack. Now, your immediate obvious question probably is, well, what the hell is slack? And that's a great question, but I don't think there is an absolute definitive answer to that question. It seems like it can't be defined, and quite honestly, it seems like it shouldn't be defined. It seems to be somewhat different to each person. It is the core ideology of the church, it is its central doctrine, and I think, and this is my perspective, I think its essence, I mean, if you're going to boil it down to something, if you're going to kind of grab something to create a sort of understanding. I think its essence is rooted in ideas of freedom and peace. You know, freedom from expectations, from mediocrity, and from applied conventions. To me, slack is the sort of lifeblood. It is the juice that allows you to frink... frink? (laughs) To think critically and freely, you know, that doesn't have you just go along in terms of conveyor belt behaviour. It allows you to move away from the tide, to look at things and make your own mind up if it's for you or not. It's a completely ludicrous and abstract concept, which I think at this point into the episode, you either realise that this is for you or it isn't for you at this point. For me, I'm all about this. I'm all about the slack and, and everything that sort of comes with it. Yeah, I I do like myself some open-ended, non-defined, non-absolute, sort of subjective, abstract, ludicrous, beautiful nonsense. And there's plenty of it here. According to the church, we are all born with original slack, and that ties us nicely into the second major tentpole behind the church of the subgenius, which is the conspiracy. In essence, the conspiracy is pretty much anything and everything that bothers you. So if it's too hot on the bus, if you're about to go for a run and suddenly it starts raining just as you're putting your shoes on, if you find yourself in the five items or less checkout lane and the person in front of you clearly has, at the very least, 12 items. This is the essence of the conspiracy. These are very, very, very specific examples of the conspiracy, I must admit. But it does go deeper, it does have a deep root, it does have an actual solid foundation. (laughs) Yeah, I say that knowing full well what I'm about to tell you that solid foundation consists of. So, back, and this is according to church law. Who am I to question church law? Back in 1953, Jehovah One, the alien space god, confronted and informed Bob Dobbs to tell him there was a conspiracy where normal people had been intentionally robbing subgeniuses of their slack for centuries. But on July the 5th, 1998, a day that would go down in infamy, a day of reckoning known as X-Day, on July the 5th, 1998, precisely at 7am in the morning, 
obviously as opposed to 7am at night, the inhabitants of Planet X would gather up all the sub-geniuses who had paid their membership dues and give them the power to exact revenge on the normal folk. That is the conspiracy. As I said, absolute ludicrous, beautiful nonsense, which is obviously thumbing its nose at L. Ron Hubbard and taking the absolute piss out of Scientology. Jehovah One, the alien space god, is comparable to Zenu, which, if I remember rightly, was some sort of alien dictator who brought his people to Earth in a spacecraft like millions and millions of years ago and then dropped hydrogen bombs on them. Uh, I think that's what released the Thetans which is what I believe we have in ourselves. We are the vessels for immortal alien spirits. Yeah, so it's obviously just, as I say, thumbing its nose at at Scientology and taking the piss. But it has now got itself a dogma. It's now got itself a belief structure. It's got itself some tenets. But, you know, like any good religion or cult, you can't just rely solely on literature and word of mouth. You need to kind of amp it up. So the next thing that obviously had to happen was a gathering, a public gathering, or as they referred to it, a revival, which obviously is a riff and a piss take of Christian revivals. And in these revivals, it's about as insane and ridiculous as you probably could imagine. So you would have a moment of sacred noise. And you would also have what were referred to as anti-music jams. Anti-music is exactly what it sounds like. Alright, so now you've got these public gatherings, you've got these meetings, these devivals, which are bringing people together. People that have found this very particular niche, strange, weird-ass thing that they just absolutely love. And it's connecting them to other people who absolutely love this abstract lunacy. And it's making this weird fringe cult for weirdos more of a weird fringe community for weirdos. And from that point, it just kind of begins to snowball. And one of the main reasons is through, obviously, word of mouth, through connecting, through having these meeting points, people are telling other people, it's finding its way out into the world in a number of ways, and one of them is through the power of audio, strangely enough. Somebody who, it seems to me, was definitely an integral part in growing the Church of the Subgenius, somebody that had a sort of influence in its growth and its further progression, is a fellow by the name of Doug Willeman, who is better known as Puzzling Evidence. Doug, or Puzzling, as we'll call him, was creating sound collages, which is basically it's what it sounds like, tinkering around with found sound samples and making improvised ideas and just creating very sort of strange, abstract pieces of music, I guess, sort of plunderphonics before it kind of had the name plunderphonics, I suppose. And if you're wondering what the hell that is, then I guess the best example would be something like Introducing by DJ Shadow, which is a phenomenal record, or anything by The Avalanches, particularly their, their early work. That sort of plunderphonics, just kind of patchwork quilts of sound and audio samples. I feel like I've just explained, like over-explained something that is really quite straightforward, and yeah, never mind. 
So Doug was making sound collages. He found the Church of the Subgenius, like a lot of people kind of just connected with it, loved what they were doing, started integrating, from what I can tell, from what I remember digging into this, started integrating elements of what they were doing into his sound collages, and they were kind of getting out there in the, the tape trading circles that were happening at the time. This ultimately, all of this to say, this ultimately led to the first Church of the Subgenius radio show on the radio station KPFA, which I believe is a listener-funded radio station located in Berkeley in California. So yeah, this led to the first Church of the Subgenius radio station, a 90-minute show which is brilliantly called The Hour of Slack. Now, obviously, getting this out across the airwaves using this particular medium is a great way to reach even more people, and that's exactly what happened. It just continued to grow even further to the point where they had their very first convention, which then attracted not just radio interest, but television interest in the sense of a lot of local news coverage. Obviously not headline news, it's more like the back end of the news broadcast. You know, the, the area reserved for, like, fluff pieces. You know the type, like, one-eyed border collie saves entire family of turtles from drowning, or man has, I know, bologna and jam sandwiches every day for lunch for the last 55 years. Or in this case, local convention centre holds convention for weird fringe cult. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So obviously the news coverage puts the church out there in the public eye a lot more, but it also puts Ivan out there a lot more in front of the public, because he is, for all intents and purposes, the talking head of the church. He's put out there, and, you know, it's helping the group, it's helping the church grow, obviously, it's getting more eyes on what they're doing, but it's also exposing him a lot more, and this obviously kind of has a, a number of ramifications to it, you know, in terms of just public relations, uh, his job and his marriage. But the possibilities of what could become from this, of what the church could actually become, it pushed him on despite the difficulties, despite also the financial difficulties of doing this as well. He kept going and seeing where it could go. And believe me, it did go. So, if you remember me telling you earlier, Ivan contacted a whole bunch of publishers to try and get the pamphlet published. He got like 150 rejections. Well, through, I guess, circumstance and connection, I suppose. I suppose you could boil it down to those. Through Ivan's sister-in-law, who was working in publishing in New York at the time, and the editor of a publication called McGraw-Hill, who found a pamphlet for the church, in Ivan's sister-in-law's car, looked at it, was kind of like, what on earth is this? Obviously resonated with him, obviously clicked with what was happening here. This then garnered interest in making the book of the subgenius. Not just a pamphlet, but an actual book. So interest then led to a bidding war, and then eventually to a publishing contract with McGraw-Hill. Not only that, not only did they get a publishing contract, but they had it made distributed and sold in the religious section of bookstores not in like the comedy section not in like the comic book section not in just like specific interests if that's a section in bookstores i don't know but the actual religious section which i think is just amazing i love that i love the fact that not only did they get this book published despite facing the adversity despite facing so many rejections of people saying, oh, it's too snooty, there isn't an audience for this, no one's interested. They not only got a book published, 
when they also got it in the religious section. Like, it was taken seriously, which is kind of the biggest joke of all, really, in the grand scheme of things. From here, the church was invited to art galleries by people who believed that this was some kind of performance art piece, and it kind of links back to how I initially described it in that quote that I gave about it seeming like a religion, that seemed like a performance, that seemed like a joke. And me saying that, yeah, it's it's kind of all of these things, because it, it kind of is all of these things. In a weird way, it, it was a sort of inadverted performance art piece. An accidental performance art piece, I guess. So yeah, they're getting invited to art galleries and what have you. And and then the biggest thing, the biggest sort of seismic shift outside of getting the book published and putting in bookstores is the Night of Slack show. This happened in 1984 in San Francisco. It took place over two nights, I believe. And this was this was a big thing. People were putting money into this now. People were actually investing in this and building sets and giving a legitimate space resources and time and money to this thing. I mean, people were investing money and labor and time into an event that had a tub of non-sweetened Kool-Aid that people were just coming up to and drinking without question. Some of which, some of these people, they thought it was laced with acid. And you can kind of maybe understand why that may be. But yeah, this this thing was, was really kind of growing legs and sprinting at this point. What's really kind of interesting and funny and absurd and ridiculous and wonderful about the Night of Slag show is that it was the first and only public appearance of Bob Dobbs himself. So they had Bob Dobbs come onto the stage and within seconds of appearing, he's, he's assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously nobody actually died, but the whole thing was played with such a straight face. Uh, as is the whole movement. And I think that's what I really... I mean, there's a lot of things that I like about the Church of the Subgenius, but I really like the conviction, the serious conviction to something so utterly absurd. It is utterly absurd, and it is one massive joke, but that isn't to say that there aren't serious elements to it, and that's kind of where we're going to lean into now. That's where we're going to kind of tilt towards here. Because at this point, everything seemed well, you know, it's it's growing, people are really enjoying this, they are kind of throwing themselves into it, and and everything seems good. But, you know, I suppose keeping within the theme of absurdity, but not the good kind, not the deliberate kind, just the, the sort of consequential kind that is not particularly healthy, to say the least. A schism happened within the Church of the Subgenius, and it found itself split into two separate branches. On one hand, you had the Evangelicals, which was obviously the core group founded by Ivan and Philo, and these are, you know, the, the true to the roots of the Church of the Subgenius, the what were considered kinder, more do-gooders approach, with a sort of softer approach to normals. You know, the the people that basically were just looking to be free, to think freely, to have a good time, to enjoy themselves, to be silly, to be absurd, to do these kind of ridiculous things. And then on the other side, you had the branch of the Holocaustals, which was founded by a member called Papa Joe Mama. And they were, instead of bound by love, they were kind of bound 
by by hatred, uh, hatred towards normals. You know, they had this wish, this desire to see the demise and the extinction of normals. So they were kind of like the harder edge to the Church of the Subgenius. A sort of dark streak throughout the group. And that phrase kind of leads us nicely into, to, yeah, some more of the serious elements of, of where it went. With it growing and attracting more people, you know, you obviously can't keep a, a large amount of people on the same wavelength. And I suppose that kind of boils down to the fact that, look, this is a group of people that have had trouble actually being socially active, belonging to groups in the first place. So when you have a group of people that find it hard to belong to groups, you are going to have like fissures, you're going to have ruptures and schisms and breaks, and you are going to have, you know, a dark streak to it. But I suppose the darker streak really kind of came in the, the form of people who were like really getting into it. I mean, like, really getting into this thing, buying into it wholesale and taking it far too seriously, not realising the joke of it all. People that were actually buying into this as a legit thing, taking it at face value, joining because of what they thought it was, you know, wanting it to be exactly what it said it was, and then getting angry when they found that it wasn't, that it was a joke, that it was just lunacy and silliness. You know, people relying on the church to tell them what to do, to take responsibility for them and their lives, to give them direction and purpose. And in, in a way, I guess, you know, like a lot of cults do, it attracted people that needed that sense of direction, that needed somebody to take responsibility. It kind of attracted people that needed to belong to something that had a mission that was much bigger than themselves, which is not a bad thing. Which is not a bad thing at all. Everybody operates differently, but some people just really sort of zero in on that as a necessity, as a need, as a primal driving need. And it seemed that was the case with the Church of the Subgenius, people that didn't see the joke, that needed that that needed that in their lives were joining and then just getting like really, really angry and upset and, and distraught essentially when they found out that this thing that they, they thought they had been promised was, was all just a joke. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must have been like for Ivan and for, for Philo to encounter some of these people. You know, you built this thing from the ground up as a joke based on your love for just ridiculous pamphlets and just absurd humour. And now you're having to deal with people that are really, really intense and serious about this and uh, are just kind of acting out, getting violent, just displaying real intense reactions to the truth of the matter, which is that this thing they took as a serious driving force for their life, as a sort of guiding hand for their purpose and their direction, is a joke. Like, I mean, like, it's, it's got to be terrifying to even, to even kind of find yourself in, in some of those encounters that probably happened based on that. Especially when people that have maybe bought into this wholesale, into the whole dogma, the whole doctrine, the whole theology behind the Church of the Subgenius, when they find out that on July the 5th, 1998, at precisely 7am, X-Day didn't actually happen. I can't even begin to imagine if anybody, anybody took it seriously to that degree, what their reaction would be like at that point. 
it's actually really quite hard for me to even imagine, to even try and comprehend, because I have never been a religious person. I've never had any sense of belief or investment or conviction to a certain particular ideal or ideology that is that niche, that is that particular. You know, I've never ever, and this is not me coming down on anybody that does, but I've just never had that within me and my personality to subscribe and invest wholeheartedly to an idea, an ideal of that particular type, you know. So I can't even begin to imagine what it's like for people that do, people that really, truly, truly, genuinely believe with their every fibre that this thing that you've been told is going to happen is going to happen, to believe that with everything and then for it to happen, for that day to arrive, for that time to uh, finally get there and nothing happens. Like, it's, it's you know, you can kind of laugh at it because it is ridiculous and we should laugh at everything that's kind of ridiculous. But on the flip side of that coin, if you've invested yourself to that level, if you've bought wholesale into this idea, then, yeah, it's kind of got to be absolutely devastating. As, as ridiculous as it may be, it's got to be kind of devastating. Anyway, X-Day arrives July the 5th, 1998, and 7 o'clock strikes, and lo and behold, no sources arrive. Nobody gets taken up into a spaceship, none of the subgeniuses are given the powers they were promised. It just doesn't happen, you know? What does happen is that Ivan is declared a charlatan, he's uncovered in lubricant and pink feathers, and everybody within the church is kind of left with a sense of, well, now what? What's really interesting is at this point in time in the church's history is entering a completely different era. You think back to 78 when this thing first started, getting word of mouth out about this. It really did just rely on flyers and pamphlets and friends telling friends and colleagues telling colleagues. Now at the the tail end of the 90s, the, the back end of the 90s here, you've got the real boom of the internet with message boards chat rooms online access being a lot more available and easy and just information being much more widespread than it ever has been so really you would think that and you know considering this is all pretty much internet humor before the internet exploded you'd think that all right you've got this thing which people can identify with you've got numerous people that feel disenfranchised and disconnected out there on the internet this is going to really just take off now. This thing's going to go absolutely nuclear. But it kind of didn't. Following X-Day, sort of interest had kind of reached its peak, I think. You know, there were no more... I mean, the world was different as well. That's something to consider too. You know, the, the fabric of society was changing. You know, this thing was ripe for exposure during the Gen X days, you know, during the early initial boom of MTV and just sort of counterculture of the 90s, of the 80s and 90s. It seemed absolutely right for that, but I think maybe just because the way society was changing, the interest for it just wasn't there. There were other distractions, and that's possibly it. That's possibly it, you know, with the, the sort of expansion of information that came with the internet, with the novelty of being able to access so many things people had never been able to access, the connectivity of it, 
it maybe just kind of went against its better interests. Which is interesting, because it is like a really primed tool for this kind of content, for this type of thing. But yeah, maybe it's just a case of too many choices, too many options, too much stuff out there. They did find themselves in the public eye and the public consciousness a few times after X-Day. Not really for good reasons, though. Back in 1999, following the Columbine shootings, Father Joe Mama, who, if you remember before I mentioned, created the sort of subgroup within the church, the Holocaustals, you know, the, the more edgy variation, those that hated and wanted to see the extinction of normals. He called into a radio phone-in show in Boston and piggybacked off the Columbine shootings, basically saying that the shooters were into the Church of the Subgenius, that, you know, it was just another thing that was being thrown into the melting pot of influences that were being sort of blamed for Columbine. And he did this as some sort of guerrilla tactic to promote a, a revival that was happening in Boston, saying, oh yeah, these guys are into this, it's really bad. In fact, I'm really concerned because there's this meeting that they're having tomorrow night, etc. And look, I think we can all agree, not only is that just way over the top, but it's also in really bad taste. What is kind of interesting about that, though, is that the venue that was holding that revival he was trying to promote actually pulled the plug on it. I think that was because there was some sort of public pressure and the city council got involved. Anyway, whatever venue was hosting this, or supposed to be hosting this revival, they pulled the plug on it, they put the kibosh on it and said, nah, we're not letting you do that. What's interesting is that following this, of all people, a Baptist church stepped in and offered their building as a replacement. This was until they started getting bomb threats. Because, you know, as smart and as irreverent and as funny as Papa Joe Mama may have thought this kind of guerrilla tactic was, people you know, are quick to believe these kind of things as soon as something is connected. It's like whenever video games get blamed for violence, people jump on it and be like, oh yeah, you're right, of course, of course. So, you know, this goes out over the airwaves, people catch wind of it, and then just instantly assume Church of the Subgenius is uh, an influence in school shootings. Yeah. Despite this, the church does still go on. It's still active. You know, in fact, there are still the Hour of Slack shows. I think they're available as a podcast for you to listen to. There are still very much active members. It's not as, as heightened as it were. It's not obviously as popular as it once was. But there are still very active, loyal members. In fact, X-Day has kind of taken on a life of its own. Since it failed to happen, since the prophecy didn't come true back in 1998, it's become a festival, an annual festival, a pilgrimage for subgeniuses to gather and just revel in life and just be silly and just, yeah, really throw themselves in and celebrate the absurdity of life. And honestly, that's what I think I love most about this thing. Because life itself, really, in essence, is absolutely absurd. Think about the things that we do every day. Think about the things that we go through. Think about the odds of being here in the first place. You know, the odds of me being here to sit down and talk about this are astronomical. The odds of you being around in the first place to listen to this are astronomical. It's all absurd. And look, don't get me wrong, of course... There are many things throughout life that need to be taken seriously on a day-to-day level and on the larger picture side of things, both the micro and the macro. There are always going to be serious threads that we need to take seriously. But we also need to learn as a collective species, you know, as a collective group, we need to learn 
a lot more sort of resistance to things that shouldn't even be troubling in the first place. We need to be able to take the piss out of ourselves, take the piss out of serious things, scary things. We need to be able to defang the things that terrify us. And for me, there's a lot that I really, really kind of click with, with the Church of the Subgenius. I am a fan of just sort of abstract, irreverent humour anyway, but I just like the ethos that speaks to me from this group, from this movement, from this idea. And that is to just embrace the absurdity of life and to just be you, you know, and to do you and to allow yourself to live as freely and as happily as possible, you know, and to to challenge conventions, to challenge the, the things that we're expected to do, you know, anyway. That is the Church of the Subgenius. There is plenty more for you to dive and dig into if this has sort of tickled your fancy. And I really hope it has. I hope you've come into this knowing next to nothing, as clean and as blank of a slate as you possibly could, and you have found something that you either are completely invested in or that you have even just a mild passing interest in. Yeah, this thing really clicks and resonates with me, and and I'm hoping... That, I mean, I don't expect everyone to be on board with this because of its sort of subjective, abstract nature. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully it's kind of clicked and resonated with a few of you. For next week's episode, in fact, for the next two episodes, we're going to be keeping things within the realm of cults. But we are leaving behind all sense of absurdity and lunacy. Next week and the following week, episodes 9 and 10, we're going to be taking a serious look at a serious subject. And that's not to say there won't be moments of levity, because there will be, but our focus is pretty serious for episodes 9 and 10. Over these next two episodes, we're going to be talking to a former member of QAnon, which, you know, I don't think I need to explain QAnon. If you are unfamiliar with who they are, uh, now's a good time to kind of do a little bit of a dive into them. I don't think you're going to need to, because, you know, for a period of time, it was pretty much unavoidable. So yeah, for the next two episodes, we're going to be talking to Alice, which is a pseudonym which allows her to not only protect her identity, but talk very openly and candidly about her experiences, how she found QAnon in the first place, what it is that drew her to it, what it is that pulled her deeper into the rabbit hole, how life was for her, how her relationships changed, and then ultimately in episode 10, we're going to be looking at what caused her to have doubt and then eventually leave QAnon. So, yeah, it's really something. And without blowing my horn too hard, it's uh, some of the best stuff we've put out with the show so far, I think. Definitely insightful, definitely eye-opening, and at times kind of profound. So, yeah, make sure you jump in for next week's episode, and then, of course, the one after that. Or all of them. You know, just stick around. If you've liked what you've heard here... If you've liked what you've heard in previous shows, then make sure you stick around. The best way to do that is also a really great way to help out what we're doing here at Dimed Out is to simply subscribe. You can you can either smash that subscription button, although I do not recommend that. I suggest just gently tapping it, giving it a boop. Boop that subscription button. You get all the episodes following this one straight to your device of choosing without doing anything. We also do like to welcome ratings and reviews, in particular haiku reviews. That's what I'm after for the rest of this season. Haiku reviews. Stick to the traditional haiku format. Keep it nice. Unless, you know, actually no, just keep it nice. There is no unless. 
If you want a more direct way to leave feedback, get in touch with me, talk about whatever, you know, suggest ideas for future episodes, let me know what episodes you've enjoyed so far, anything, you know, I'm pretty much an open book. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at I am Mal Foster. We also have a Facebook page and a YouTube page as well. Just search for Dimed Out Podcast. You can leave your feedback and your general chit chat and, you know, even cat pages or animal pages. Just cute animal pages. I want to see some cute pets. That's what I'd like to see from you guys. Show me your cute pets being adorable. That's what I want. Not as much as ratings and reviews, though. To be fair, they are probably, you know, higher up on the list. But still, if you've got cute pet pictures, I'll have them as well. Of course, if you've really enjoyed this and you want even more content, you want bonus episodes, you want access to our Discord channel and other stuff, then make sure you check out our Patreon account. It's patreon.com forward slash out. Or if you look in the show notes for this episode, you will see a link that will take you right there, along with other links as well, if you want to sort of explore the Dimed Out universe. Can I, can I say that? Is that under copyright? Is that even something I can say? Have we established enough content for a universe? I don't know. That's a question in itself right there. Anyway, you can look into other stuff that we're doing. You can get extra um, bonus juicy goodies and, and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, if you need to feed that beast, don't worry. We've got a full buffet primed and ready to go. And on that note... I am actually pretty hungry, so I'm going to wrap things up. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, thank you for listening. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and until next time, keep it dimed out. Wouldn't you like revenge on these mediocritans, these pink boys, these box-dwelling Barbies and Kens, these normals who have made normality the norm? Pinks are but living stereotypes, insensate meat puppets and food tubes who lack and fear the spark of originality that ignites every subgenius. genius <laughs>